Welcome back, dear listener. This is Shot, Creative and Technical Director here at Evans for Faith, and we are in session eight of our Jonah series. We're almost done. Still got one more to go after this. As always, you can check out the worksheet and PowerPoint that go along with this lesson at our learning website at evidenceforfaith.org. You can also help us keep this program free by becoming a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. And I got no other advertisements today. So here's Michael in session eight of Jonah. go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day you've given us and beautiful day you've provided for us. Lord, we thank you. And again, we, we thank you so much for the health that you have given us. And we thank you for that. And Lord, again, we just thank you so much for your word. Um, this book of Jonah in particular, how we have seen it is a book of salvation. It is a book that um, has so many things that's messianic in it. But we also, Lord, uh, have learned just a lot of interesting things about your character and about the way that you are, which we will again tonight in this lesson. So we ask that you would just bless our time. May your Holy Spirit, Lord, do the teaching and help us, Lord, to glean things tonight that we will assimilate into our lives, that we would be changed. And just open up our eyes, Lord, to things we many times just skim over, but let your spirit teach us interesting things tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we're going in with Jonah, um, the second to the last lesson, this is eight, so we'll do the, the ninth one next week. And as we do this tonight, we're um, just to bring you up the speed, we're in Jonah chapter four, and it is tonight we're just doing four, five, and six. That's as far as we're going to get. Um, and in this, we have seen now, Jonah has... Already had his encounter with the fish. He's already uh, come out of that and has gone to Nineveh, the Assyrian capital. And there um, he has uh, been preaching to the people, telling them that God was going to destroy the place in 40 days. And what happened was the people repented. Um, his own country, and back in, in the upper kingdom of Israel, the, under Jeroboam II is not. They uh, even though they're they're um, having the greatest economic boom the country has ever seen, they are just wallowing in moral corruption and idolatry. And so his country turns away from God. God sends him to Nineveh, and the Nineveh, who is the enemy of Israel, um, ends up throwing away their idols and repenting and we have this massive revival of in the next lesson we'll find out approximately how many people were there but it's in the hundreds of thousands of people um, turned to God the greatest revival in human history ever recorded and Jonah though is not too happy with this because he was really hoping that God was going to destroy his enemies the enemies of his own country the enemy of Israel and God doesn't destroy them God pardons them so with that, we pick up in verse 4 now um, in Jonah. And again, we're out of the English Standard Version. So it says, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant 
and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So that's as far as we're going to get tonight. There's a lot of stuff in here, which you think there's not that much stuff. There is a lot of stuff. Don't laugh at me like this. There's a lot of stuff in here. You know, he is really upset that God has pardoned these people. So he goes out and he sits uh, out there and he's still in a way hoping. I mean, remember, he, he was telling the people he wasn't preaching a message of repentance. He was preaching a message of doom and the people repented. And then he knows that God and he tells God in the last lesson we learned, I knew this would happen. If they repent, you're going to be merciful to them. And I don't want that. And he's very upset about this. So as we look at this, I don't know if you notice how that verse started in verse four, but I thought it's sort of strange. I mean, it says in Jonah 4, 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Isn't that a weird way of phrasing it? I mean, like what in the world does that mean? So um, there's different ways of, of looking it up. And, you know, you can go and I always encourage you whenever you're going to do a Bible study, get more than one translation. And now the English Standard Version is a word-for-word translation, but uh, there's a couple of other ones that we can look at. For instance, the New American Standard is a word-for-word translation, and look how it's phrased here. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Now the thing is, both of these are word-for-word translations, yet you can see there's quite a contrast between these two. Do you do well to be angry? Do you have a good reason to be angry? And so when you see stuff like this, usually what's happening when you find two word-for-word translations and they're saying something different, that's usually an indication the Hebrew is hard to figure out at this point. Ancient Hebrew is still, uh, in some cases, like a mystery. Um, it, is, it was a strange language. It really was. And it's one of the oldest languages. Matter of fact, there was a study that was just published a couple of uh, months ago that Hebrew, ancient Hebrew might have been according to these, these scientists, these are not Christian Bible scholars or anything. These are linguistic scientists that are studying this. What's the oldest language? And they have, uh, were publishing that, uh, that Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, goes back farther than they thought anything possibly could even, which, well, that sort of fits with the Bible in a lot of ways. But anyway, so what this is, if you go and you start uh, researching the uh, verse 4 of chapter 4, you start to find out in many commentaries, they'll say, it's hard to understand exactly what's going on. So let's take a look at another word-for-word translation and see what we can come up with this one. So I chose the Word English Bible, if you've never heard of this one. Um, The World English Bible is a Bible that was published in, I think it came out in 2000. And it's a public domain Bible. So, So you can put it on, it's on the internet, though you can buy copies of it now in bound print, but it came out primarily on the internet so that everybody in the world could have a word-for-word translation. Though it's not real popular because people have not really heard of it, and plus a lot of people just carry a Bible, but that's what it is. And it's, it's a, a very good translation, and it's a word-for-word. And here it says, Yehovah, or Yahweh, if you will, said, is it right for you to be angry? So we're seeing, you know, the idea, a good reason to be angry. Do you do well to be angry? Do you have a good, uh, is it right for you to be angry? So between those three, you sort of get the idea. God's uh, giving him a question as, because Jonah's sitting there pouting. I mean, the guy is, (laughs) as we said, he's not the greatest prophet. Uh, Had chapter three ended, it would have been great. But when chapter 4 comes, we see Jonah becoming very selfish. Um, he's he's uh, 
a, a racial bigot. He can't stand anybody who's not his own people. He hates these Assyrians, and God sends him there. Um, the revival happens, which even makes him more angry. I mean, yeah, what a guy. Um, but that's what's going on here. So that's the reason you see this. And I think you can get the idea. Is it right for you to be angry? Now, you notice what that God is asking this question. God is asking the question. And um, God is not, notice, he's not judging Jonah. He's actually asking a question. He's not, even though Jonah is, he's sinning. He really is. And God is, you know, like, hey, you know, you're doing wrong. Instead of coming down on him and judging him, God is beautifully setting up a question here to let Jonah actually judge himself, which we're going to see that continues for the rest of this chapter. And as a matter of fact, if you recall how this chapter ends, it sort of ends with a question, God asking a question. And so there's, this is one of the, the few books in the Bible where instead of the Bible coming to a complete ending that's very crystal clear, God has uh, given, the, the way this book is put together, God has given us the opportunity to think about it. He ends the book with a question for us to think about. And we're supposed to come up with the right answer. So that's what's going on. It's really a unique book because of that. But um, so he's not judging Jonah here. Is it right for you to be angry? He's asking a question. He's not coming down with a fly swat, whacking the guy like that. So that's what's going on in chapter four. Now, um, verse four, I'm sorry. In chapter uh, four, verse five, we see what Jonah now does. Now, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, that's a long sentence. There's a lot of material here. Now, let me ask you a rhetorical question. The revival has just happened in this place, in Nineveh. Jonah was hoping this is not what was going to happen. He was hoping these people would not repent and God would destroy them. On the other hand, he knew if they did repent because God is a God of mercy, that God would forgive them, which is what happened. Now it says here, Jonah went out of the city. What should Jonah had been doing? What should Jonah have been doing? Because what we see what he does, he goes out of the city and he makes a booth. I mean, Israelites, Jews, they're, they're used to making booths and stuff like this. Um, I mean, even have a, a holiday, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, as it's called. And still Orthodox Jews do that to this day. They will set up a little booth, decorate it, and they stay in the booth to, um, to celebrate how they traveled in tents during the Exodus and stuff. Uh, so making a booth, that's sort of like old school to them. But he went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. But that first part, he went out of the city. What should Jonah have been doing? He should have gone west so he could go home. Ah, go home. Yeah, he didn't go home. Of course, if he goes home, that's where the nation is all turned away from God. They've thrown everything about God out. They've just got idols. And yeah, he doesn't, as far as we know, there is no record of Jonah ever going back home. I told you in one of the lessons when we were talking about Nineveh itself, there is, well, ISIS just blew it up a couple of, about a year ago, but it was the tomb of Joseph. Um, according to even some, I'm sorry, tomb of Jonah, um, because according to even Jewish commentaries, 
Jonah, some of them suggest Jonah never left Nineveh. He ended up staying there the rest of his life and died there and was buried there. Now, we don't know because the Bible doesn't say one way or other on this. We just dropped off at the end of this chapter with a question. We have no idea what goes on. But that's one opportunity, one answer you could give to go back home to the people who need to have a revival. <laughs> yeah, send them back there. But that's not what probably happened. But what should Jonah have been doing? Back into the city to rejoice with the people. <laughs> Yeah, continue teaching, rejoice with them as to God's mercy. Teach. I mean, this guy's a what? He's a prophet. He's the spokesman of God. Instead of doing that, what's he do? He goes out of the city. The city is having a revival. I mean, I've we talked about this before. You have these tense things with like Billy Graham back in the in the sixties and fifties, sixties and seventies, and 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 stuff. And and the thing is, Billy Graham. People started doing an altar call. Don, you know. Billy Graham just didn't walk out and go back to the hotel. He didn't do that. Sort of that's what Jonah's doing. It says he went out of the city. See, that just seems a little odd. Normally we just read right over this. But Jonah should have been in that city. He abandons his mission again. He is the spokesperson for God. And he abandons his mission. I mean, he is a prophet. He should have stayed there. He should. What, what do these Assyrians really know about God? What do they know? Only what Jonah has told them. Exactly. Because they're Assyrians. They're Gentiles. They occasionally would raid into these cities and conquer things and rob and and pillage and stuff. But they would go back home and stuff. But the thing is, they didn't know about God. They didn't know God's laws. They didn't have a copy probably even of the Torah anywhere in the kingdom. They didn't have any of this stuff. Jonah is a prophet of God. He knows this stuff. And he doesn't do that. Instead... When they have now turned to God, he leaves <laughs> instead of teaching them. So he could have been so useful if he had turned back around, gone back into that city, start teaching the people about God, encouraging them in their decision to follow God, in this repentance. He could have done a tremendous job here. Like I say, Jonah keeps getting fantastic opportunities that God keeps giving him, and he just keeps blowing it all the time. He keeps so focused on on himself, his selfish ideas and stuff, that he totally misses everything. And that's a faith lesson for all of us. We must work hard to be a means of blessings to others. Jonah missed this fantastic opportunity to go into the city and bless those people. Yes, question. Not a question, but I was thinking of it the other way. What a great God to use someone as crummy as Jonah. Exactly. Yeah, and it's like in spite of his rebellion twice, God still did this incredible miracle. Exactly. You hit one of the main cruxes of this whole story, how God takes a screwed up prophet. This guy is a mess, really, when you talk about it. And you start seeing, and there are some other prophets in the Old Testament that were sort of messed up too. But Jonah, man, he took a patent out on this. Um, to many Christians, we, we could be the same way though. We can be the same way. Oh, we know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We've been saved by grace. We've repented and stuff like this. And then instead of getting involved in people who we work with or whatever, we miss an opportunity to be a blessing to the world. 
when I was teaching back in Illinois, most of the school, matter of fact, about every job, I was thinking about this this morning. I think every school I taught at in Illinois, I taught in three different school districts. And everyone, I think I had about a 25-minute commute. And I know the last 10 years I had, a, it, was, it was exactly 25 minutes. I could just go out my door. I could get and pull into the school and walk into the school, be 25 minutes. During this 25 minutes, in the last 10 years in particular, I drove through a state forest. It was beautiful. There were just, oh my gosh, it's just trees, the Kankakee River. I had a road uh, called River Road. I just paralleled the river, just rode right up to my school like that. And trees everywhere, deer, turkeys, all sorts of stuff. Um, and I remember as I had that, that morning commute, and I would many times leave just after six o'clock in the morning to go there. Um, as you're riding in the car and stuff like this, I many times spent that time in prayer, and I would uh, just talk to God like you sitting in the front seat. And many times I found myself singing a song that is based on this exact faith lesson right here, that we can be a blessing to others. And I used to pray to God as I would drive my car, Lord, let me be a blessing to these kids and the teachers I work with. Help me to be able to be a mirror to shine your reflection onto them. I used to pray this almost every single day. And it reminds me of one of my favorite hymns, Make Me a Blessing. And if you're not familiar with this, because we don't sing hymns like we used to, um, George Shuler and Ira Wilson were the writers of this. Uh, both of them went to Moody and Moody Bible Institute. And they, I believe they were roommates in Moody. And they wrote over a hundred songs. Most of them have just disappeared from, um, from history and stuff. We have no idea what they were. But this was one that Ira, he, Ira Wilson is the person who uh, wrote the, the words, and Schuler's the one who put it to music and stuff. And they spent a lot of their time just writing hymns when they were in, in Moody. Um, this is like at the turn of the century. This is like in the uh, latter 1800s, uh, early 1900s and stuff like that in that time period. But this song is one of the most beautiful. And what's really sad about it, later on in his life, Ira Wilson was interviewed what can you tell us about writing this hymn? You know, some hymns have fantastic stories. I won't go into some of them, but oh my gosh, day by day and with each passing moment, oh my gosh, the story behind that is just, it's a tearjerker. Uh, it, it ranks right up there with, it is well with my soul. Most of us know the story of that one. Well, day by day it, it is almost an exact time type of story. Uh, a girl loses her father uh, uh, as he, uh, the ship uh, he was traveling on, I think it's in Stockholm, as they were coming into port, the ship sort of lurched with a wave, and the guy just fell overboard, and she watched her father drown and stuff. Oh, my gosh, it's just, you know, for these people to write these hymns then. So he was asked, though, in an interview, Ira, what can you tell us about Make Me a Blessing? And his comment was really interesting. I have no memory of even writing that. He never did. To his dying day, he couldn't remember ever writing that. It was one of those, like I said, they wrote so many, he couldn't keep track of them. But... I just want, I've got the lyrics here. I just want to read them because it's such a beautiful song. And the message behind this, this is what Jonah really needed to hear. As it goes, out in the highways and byways of life, many are weary and sad. Carry the sunshine where darkness is rife, making the sorrowing glad. Make me a blessing. Make me a blessing. Out of my life, may Jesus shine. Make me a blessing, O Savior, I pray. Make me a blessing to someone today. 
Tell the sweet story of Christ and His love. Tell of His power to forgive. Others will trust Him if only you prove true every moment you live. And you go into the chorus again. And then the, the third verse, Give as was given to you in your need. Love as the Master loved you. Be to the helpless a helper indeed. Unto your mission be true. Man, that is a phenomenal song. I used to sing that, like I said. I used to sing that in my car as I would drive to work because that is exactly what I used to pray for, is that God would be able to use me. And he did in that school system. Uh, there was a, a lot of people that, you know, we ended up having a, I don't know if I've mentioned, but we had a public, at this public school, we had a Bible club that met on Mondays after school. Denise made treats for it, of course. Um, and we would meet after school, and it was a, it started off as a club. We only had three kids when it first started, three kids. And when I left that school in 99, it was the largest club in the school. We had all sorts of people coming to that all the time. And even a couple of teachers used to attend um, the class or the, the club afterwards. But Jonah missed it. I mean, we need, we should sing this song more often and ponder the words as we sing this because this is a phenomenal song. And we are to be blessings to the world. Um, Sometimes we're the only vision of Christ people will ever see. Nineveh was like that. The only representative of God they would ever see was Jonah. And what does Jonah do? He walks out of them. Walks out of the city. So that's what happens. Now, going back to this verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. Now, we, he probably, since... Israel is over to the west. He probably entered from the west and is now sitting on an eastern hill waiting to see what's going to happen. Waiting to see what's going to happen. Because we're going to see in this, Jonah is actually wondering if, this is going, if God's going to change his mind. We're going to see that. But um, here is a map. I just took this off of Google Earth showing you where Mosel, that's where Nineveh was. Nineveh was, um, you can see the Tigris River going through here. Nineveh, if you can see right in this photograph here, this barren place, here you can see houses and stuff all over, but here it's brown. That's the ancient city of Nineveh, where the archaeology was being done in this huge city. And it had this massive, even back in those days, it was a massive suburb system around this place. So um, Jonah came, of course, from the, uh, from the west, probably came into the west. It says that he goes to the east side to go sit on a hill. And if you keep going out here, you'll notice there's a mountain range up here to the northwest. But if you go straight east, here is a hill section right here that very possibly he sat on. Sitting up here, he could see the whole area of the city. And so that's roughly, uh, very likely where he, he stayed. And what he's doing, he, it's 40 days after his arriving. He was hoping that God was going to destroy them. And God doesn't destroy them, but he was hoping that's what was going to happen. That was his prayer. But notice that it says, Jonah made a booth for himself there. So he makes probably up on this hill, there's not a lot of trees there, but there's a lot of rocks and stuff that he could build up a little shade. And do you remember what Jonah probably looks like after his encounter with a fish? He probably does not have hardly any melanocytes, so he cannot produce a suntan. Um, he's probably bald. Um, and so at this point, having that with bleached skin, um, he's very susceptible to the weather uh, elements around there. 
but he makes this booth. So it's not, I know some people have tried to say, well, maybe this has to do with the Feast of Tabernacles. No, I think what it is, is he just made a booth because it was hot. And because of his skin condition and everything after being inside the fish for so long. And I think that's the whole thing. And it's not uncommon. I checked the records in this area. It is not uncommon for the temperature to go 110 degrees Fahrenheit in the daytime out there in this area. So, I mean, I think this guy was probably suffering a little bit um, just because of what had happened to him before. So he it says also that he sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now notice it says to see what would become of the city. The people have already repented, but he's not giving up hope yet that God's going to destroy them. Maybe their repentance isn't really true. Oh, I'll sit out here and see. Maybe God will still destroy them. Or, oh, I kept telling him God's going to destroy them. Maybe God will still go ahead and destroy them. And so he's sitting out and hoping that that's what's going to happen. So his whole attitude is so wrong. Instead of rejoicing with the people when they repent um, and turn to God, he is sulking up on a hill. Um, it's very hot. He's trying to find some type of shade and stuff. And that's where we find this guy sitting up on a booth, probably made of stones. He's sitting there trying to find some shade and stuff as he's doing um, his little sinning there with his attitude. So um, take a look at this next verse now. We get to verse 6. And we see some more. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, we've talked a lot about this book and the miracles that are, are mentioned in this book. Some of them, like the fish, as I showed you, could very possibly and very likely be just done with like a Carcharodon megalodon, big, large, like shark thing, um, like the granddaddy of a great white shark, huge thing. We know that they lived in the Mediterranean. So that seems like that could be, instead of a miracle, God's providence. Jonah lives inside this thing, comes out three days, three nights, as we've already talked the time frame on that. And again, that could have been natural, but we know that God has got his hand in, in this all the time too. But it's not necessarily a miracle because as I showed you, it's not 72 hours that he was inside there because they told time differently. They could have been just you know as many as 30 hours. But even so now he, he goes to Nineveh. As I told you, when he goes to Nineveh and he preaches to this <laughs> very crude, evil nation, they repent and turn to God, throw away their idols. And as I told you before, you want to talk about a miracle? That is the miracle of this book. That is the huge miracle. But now we see another thing happening that cannot be explained by natural means. Um, this appears to be a miracle. It says, now the Lord God appointed a plant. So that's what we've got into. Now this, to grow this thing up over in, in one afternoon, to cover him and stuff like that, that's a miracle. That is a miracle. So definitely a miracle with the repentance. That's the miracle most people miss in this book. How God re accepts their repentance and offers them grace. That's the miracle, the big one. And the people miss that. And you notice it's in the middle of this book. It's not at the end. That's at the, the middle. It's at the chiasm of the book. The, most, the middle part. This is a little bit later. And now we see a definite miracle. And 
I want to show you a couple of little things here about this plant thing. Let's, I want to tell you a few things. It says, now the Lord God appointed a plant. Now, first of all, mana appointed. In other words, this is something that God, he did the same thing with the shark. God appointed a big fish, it says. So there's the word appointed there. The word appointed appears four times here. And it's God using nature to do things. And that's what we keep seeing here. Um, so an appointment, God actually taking nature. And he often did this. Did not Jesus do the same thing? Take nature and twist nature miraculously. Remember when Jesus is in the boat with the disciples and it's storming on the sea, the Sea of Galilee. Jesus stops the storm, a natural miracle. Jesus uh, turns water into wine, another natural miracle. It's amazing how many times God uses nature. Every one of the plagues that hit the Egyptians, except the Passover. But all those plagues, God used natural things. Actually, what he was doing, he was attacking each one of the Egyptian gods when he was doing that. Um, there was a god for all these things, the god of the river, um, the god of, of frogs. Yeah, they had those two. Um, the god of lice, they had a god for that. I mean, they even worshipped beetles that crawled around with dung balls. I mean, no one of the Egyptians disappeared. Um, but that's what they would do. And, um, and when it came to the last plague, the, the Passover, the plague of death, Pharaoh had the power of life and death. So it was a power that he went against directly Pharaoh. So God uses nature a lot of times in doing this. So that's what we see. He's actually appointed. He's taking the thing in nature and he's changing it slightly to do a specific function. Um, four times, like I say, this is used in this book, that word. Um, Kikeon is the other word. God appointed a plant. This is the word here. And whether it's a plant or a gourd. Now, if you look back in some of different translations, the King James, for instance, it says the word gourd. Um, in other translations, matter of fact, there's quite a few translations, it's listed as gourd. Um, it's also the word that's used for plant because this word, kikeon, is the, is the word for either one of these. And because of this, we, we ended up with a lot of people having arguments and stuff about that anyway. But um, God is appointing a special plant. I don't think, I mean, he could be making a totally new plant, but it's the way that this is phrased four times in this book, God appoints. So God is showing throughout the book of Jonah, he is in charge of nature. And it says the Lord God. That is Yehovah or Yahweh, or many translations today would call that Jehovah. Jehovah Elohim. Elohim is the same name that is used for God back in the creation in chapter 2, chapter 3, that God created because this is the I am I, that I am from um, Exodus 3, 14. That's that name where here we have Elohim. Elohim, by the way, that's plural. A plural name for God. Remember, God is three and one. It's interesting that it's set up like that. But Elohim is like the creator, the powerful creator. So that's what this is talking about. The powerful creator God appointed a plant is the way that this is phrased. And you don't see these two words, uh, these two names put together all the time. There's a few, all through the Torah, it's like that. When God is doing these miracles and stuff with, the, um, with Moses and stuff, he's often called Neavah um, Elohim. But, um, and by the way, I think I've told you the way that we get Jehovah is they took another name of God, Adonai, and they took the vowels of Adonai and they put it inside of here and you get Yehovah, 
Yehovah, Jehovah, that's how they got the name Jehovah. So it's a safer way of saying this because to an Orthodox Jew, they would never even pronounce this. They wouldn't even spell this out. Um, that would be too holy. So um, you're risking blasphemy to them if you do that. But that's what the two names are. Now, as I said, some plants do grow fast. Matter of fact, kelp you find on the west coast of the United States. Kelp, it's a brown algae. It's the tallest growing plant-like creature we know of. I know we've often heard and be taught in school that sequoias and redwoods are the tallest trees. They are the tallest trees. But the tallest plant-like creature, kelp. Kelp can grow 800 feet. And what's fascinating is, uh, to marine biology, if you put it under perfect conditions, you can sit and actually watch it grow. You can actually see um, the, 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 um, the, the plant-like creature, the thallus, as we call it, because it's not really a leaf, it's uh, an algae. But the thallus actually extending out. You can see this under ideal conditions. It'd be the same thing as like what we used to do in school, watching the hour hand on the clock, how it slowly moves. You just glance at it, it's not moving, but if you sit and you actually watch it, that's what I, I remember seeing kelp grow, and that's what it reminded me of, was that like we had this thing, okay, watch the kelp grow. It's not growing. Watch that kelp grow. And it still doesn't look like, would you just watch the kelp grow? And as I'm sitting here, it's like, holy cow, it's like how the, I really did think of this, the, the hands of a clock, it's slowly just extending in length, um, reproducing cells. Wow. But this is not a kelp because this is in the ocean. So we know it's not a kelp. But I'm just showing you that there are plants that grow fast, but this, is, this has to be a miracle. And most theologians believe it was probably this. It's called the castor oil plant. Um, Racinus communis is the plant itself. Um, it's sometimes called the palm of Christ. It's another common name for this thing. Um, it's supposed to be like a hand extended or something like that. Actually, there's a lot of fingers there. But um, that's what they call this. And it's a succulent plant. It is very common all around um, the Tigris River there. Matter of fact, it's common all the way from Africa to India. Swampy areas, dry areas, it doesn't matter. This plant is all over the place. And I remember seeing these in Israel, though I never thought of it at that time to take a picture of one of these. So I had to get these off of... Uh, um, Bing or whatever it was. But anyway, it's a succulent plant. It does have a hollow stem. Um, it produces a fruit. And it is very, very common at the Tigris River there. So it's, some say that that's what this thing is. And it does grow with remarkable speed under perfect conditions. You can actually sit and watch this thing grow, but not to the point of kelp. It's not that fast, but it does grow quickly. So I did a little research trying to find out studies that have been done on this plant. And I did come across one. Um, that was done here in the United States where they took this plant, put it in under ideal conditions, and the plant went from, um, it, it started off as a seed, and it reached a height of 13 feet in three months. That's a pretty fast-growing plant um, to do that. And it does have large leaves that would provide shade. The thing is, what really got me about this as I researched this, this is crazy. But our early church fathers, like St. Jerome, St. Augustine, these guys are contemporaries of each other, they argued about this. They got in heated arguments. They wouldn't even talk to each other over what plant it was. I don't know. One of them said, I don't remember which one, which one said what, but one said, it, it's this plant. And another one says, no, it's a gourd. And no, it's not. It's going to be this. And they, uh, Martin Luther even got into an argument one time about what this plant was. Can we just agree that God appointed a type of a plant and he supernaturally grew it to a height to cover the bald man's head? I mean, is it really that difficult? Do we have to know the exact species? 
gee, it's so goofy. What sometimes even our Christian fathers who we always look up to did some of the stupidest things. For instance, one of the major argu arguments they used to have was how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? I am not making that up. You study church history, you'll see that was a common thing that, that uh, church fathers used to argue about. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? I mean, come on. People are dying in sin. We have grace to offer. What are we arguing about stupid things like that for? Gee. And there's, there's a faith lesson here for us. Nothing is too difficult for God. If God says, I'm going to put a plant there, and I'm going to have it grow up that afternoon and cover this guy's head, I don't have a lot of trouble believing that. Because I think he can do anything. And I'll tell you what I think is even harder, is to get a nation like the Assyrians to turn around, throw away their idols, and worship God in less than 40 days. With one screwed up prophet teaching them this stuff. That is the miracle. No, nothing's too difficult for God. And like I say, a greater evil... Uh, or a greater miracle was this evil nation being forgiven. That's what we want to focus on. That's the rejoicing part of this. But as we continue with this verse, and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade, be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Do you notice that Jonah is in discomfort? It's not that Jonah made this little thing and he's sitting there like, wow, you know, he's got a hammock inside his little booth and he's sipping a pina colada here and just watching the sunset. That's not what's going on. The guy is actually in pain uh, and in discomfort because of probably what happened to him in the fish. And so he's trying to get out of this, this intense heat, the blinding, blinding sun coming down on him. It's got to make him so uncomfortable and stuff. And again, God extends mercy and grace to this askew parent, uh, prophet. He doesn't swat him with a fly swatter. That when many times we think, well, if God gets mad at me, he's going to punish me. You know something? The book of Jonah says, that's not how it goes. I mean, God can, and sometimes he does. But sometimes he doesn't for a reason. And in this case, he's extending mercy and grace even to this guy who is sinning, sitting out there where he should be in the city doing the preaching and leading these people. Instead, he's sitting here sulking and still praying that God is going to destroy them. And God, instead of doing that, God plants a, has a, a plant come up and cover him and makes him feel better. Because of the plant, that's why as this verse goes, that he's sitting there waiting to see what's going to happen. Because because of that plant, Jonah believes that God is blessing him again and maybe yet God is going to do what he wants him to do, destroy these people. That's what he's hoping for. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Jonah is, is wrong. He wants this nation destroyed. He goes up here, he's mad at God, he sits down, and he builds a little thing. All of a sudden, God supplies this thing to come up and cover him and give him comfort. It's an act of grace and mercy. And Jonah notices this. I mean, you, you have to think, wow, that grew quick. God's blessing me. So God is blessing me. <gasps> Maybe God's going to destroy these people after all. And I won't appear as a false prophet then. You see how this logic is going here. Jonah was probably thinking God's going to destroy the city as he desired. <laughs> he's just adding to his sin as he's doing this. But that's what's going on. He took God's gift as a, a token that God has come, away, come around to his way of thinking. That's what's going on here now. 
He's thinking God is going to destroy them, that God has changed his mind. He's not going to take their repentance, or maybe their repentance is false, and he's going to destroy them. And that's why Jonah is sitting there like that, thinking this. In fact, what was really happening, God was setting him up for a very, very serious faith lesson. And this is what we're going to end with here tonight because we're out of time. But this faith lesson is something that we need to watch for too. You see, sometimes God will bless us even when we are not walking close with Him. God will sometimes have everything fall into a straight line when we know we're sinning or we have some sin that we're unrepentant of, yet God keeps doing nice things for us and blessing us. I mean, you can tell special things, special gifts and stuff coming from God. And we think, wow, so God is blessing me. God must be fine with this. Oh, no, no. It's not that God has changed his mind about what's in wrong. God can't change, Malachi 3.6. He's not going to change his character. If it's wrong, it's going to be wrong. Instead, he is setting us up. He did this to Jonah. He does this with us also. He will sometimes set us up for an important lesson to change our minds to his way of thinking. And in doing so, he sometimes blesses us right before we get taught the lesson. That's what's happening with Jonah. Jonah has this plant come up. He's definitely sinning. He's definitely in the wrong. Yet God blesses him with this thing. But as we know how the story goes, we've already read the end of the book, we know what's going to happen. He's going to use this plant to teach Jonah the lesson about what he has missed about these Ninevites. That's what we're going to call, pick up next week with. So with that, let's close in prayer tonight. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful book. And Lord, how many times I myself have read over this over and over, and I've taught this lesson in times past, and I have missed some of these important things. That this plant coming up is a blessing. And Lord, you do things in, in mysterious ways. Oh, wow, are you mysterious? But that doesn't mean that you condone things that are wrong because we know it goes against your character. But Lord, you also will use things like this to teach us lessons, which we will see with Jonah. And we thank you for this book. I thank you for this book. And may your Holy Spirit continue, Lord, to teach us. And may, Lord, we take the words of that song, Make Me a Blessing, this week, that, Lord, maybe even singing as we're going to work or just sitting in our rooms or sitting at home. But Lord, take the words of that song to heart. Lord, use us as a blessing for those around us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give and help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you'd like to hear Michael live, you can check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. And on that note, this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>